This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 24 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Luke Beeson. He's Vice President for Security in the UK and Continental Europe at BT in London. Mr. Beeson leads teams who deliver their cybersecurity services to customers while protecting BT's own systems as well. BT is the holding company that owns British Telecommunications. They have operations in around 180 countries. They provide landlines, mobile and broadband services in the UK, and they also provide subscription television and IT services. We discuss the challenges a large organization like BT faces when it comes to protecting themselves and their clients, the effect the upcoming GDPR regulations may have on them and organizations around the world, and we'll get his take on the role of threat intelligence in his day-to-day security strategies. Stay with us. As a global internet service provider, um, clearly security at BT is a very, very high priority for us. We have a security organization uh, of about 2,500 strong, and within that organization, we're focused on both the protection of BT and the delivery of services to our customers. And we've very deliberately kept those teams together so that we can take what we see as a global internet service provider, i.e. the good, the bad, and the ugly of internet traffic, and translate that into information and intelligence that helps us, A, protect BT, but also, B, protect um, our customers through the managed security services we provide them. As part of that, obviously, we need to have a very good insight into the the threat landscape, and we we, we call it our ringside seat as an internet service provider because we can see into what's going on in the internet um, to a degree, obviously. uh, And so then in terms of threats, that we face in the telco sector specifically, I think I pick out three key threats. Um, the first one being um, actually the fact that some of the trade craft that the attackers are now using is becoming more and more complex. And we are starting to see and have seen for some time now a bleed across from nation state level capability into criminal and organized uh, gangs. Um, and they have worked out very effectively how to use that capability to make money uh, in the cyber domain. And so that's really up the ante in terms of the, the arms race that we all face. And, and we're seeing more and more sophistication in, in, in the attacks that are, that are being crafted. At the same time, we're still seeing some of the traditional threats, such as DDoS. DDoS, um, for us as a telco, is a, is a big, big problem. And we've invested very heavily to make sure that we can protect ourselves and our customers. Um, but the volumetric you know, attacks that we're seeing and the scale of those volumetric attacks are starting to question some of the foundations of the internet. So, you know, we're spending a lot of time working with our peering partners, uh, other internet service providers around the world, to make sure that we have plans in place and agreements in place such, such that we can maintain the, the, the integrity of the internet when we see these big, uh, high-volume attacks. And, and also, it's the length of the attacks. We're seeing DDoS attacks going into 24, 48, 72 hours at times. So, um, you know, the sustained nature of the attacks uh, makes it uh, uh, sometimes challenging to to continue to mitigate them. I think the other thing I would talk about as a a telco is availability. So we always talk about the CIA of security, the confidentiality, the integrity and availability. Um, 
availability for telco is a huge deal, uh, and particularly for us at BT, having recently become a sports broadcaster, not so recently now, several years ago, um, but, but the investment that we've made in buying sports rights um, for Premiership football here in the UK and also for European uh, football means that um, we simply cannot afford to have a, a black screen. So there's a huge amount of efforts from a security perspective being put in to make sure that that's the case and those pictures are not interrupted. So I think availability is a big, big deal for telecommunications providers. And what about your place as a member of the overall cybersecurity community in terms of uh, sharing the information that you gather in response to some of these threats? Yeah, so again, we, we take that very seriously. Uh, clearly in the UK, we, we play a pivotal role in uh, helping to share information. So we will actively share any intelligence and information that we gather from our network with uh, other um, other providers. Uh, and there's a, there's a close network of, of telecommunications companies in the UK, um, but also in the various industry information sharing groups that we're part of. Um, we also work closely here in the UK with the National Cyber Security Centre and they help to share on some of the information that we may provide them and, and, and vice versa. So, so I think in this, in this world, in the security world that we will operate in, information sharing, intelligence sharing is, is crucial because you only have to look at how our adversaries are operating and they are very, very good at sharing information and jumping on the latest vulnerability and, and, and sharing the exploits that they've created. So if we don't share information, we're, we're fighting with, uh, with one hand or if, if not two hands tied behind our backs, I'd like to suggest. So, so we take that very seriously and we are making sure that we're in the middle of all, all of the dis- different fora to share information and intelligence. You mentioned uh, the increasing uh, velocity and and um, length of various attacks. I'm I'm wondering how much does automation play a part in what you do? Particularly, we hear a lot of talk about things like machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, are they playing a role in in your ability to keep up with these attacks? They're certainly helping. We'd like to to have more of that capability. I wouldn't go as far as saying we're using artificial intelligence, but I would say that we're definitely using machine learning. Um, And our cyber defense platform is a a great example of that. So we have built our own uh, visual analytics and our own algorithms um, to effectively allow the computers to start to um, learn the environment and pick up on... uh, trends and patterns that might patterns that might be indicative of something bad about to happen so we are wherever possible trying to complement human intuition with um, machine learning and i think that's really i think that's where we are in in the world of cybersecurity right now i don't think we're uh, in, a, in an arena where we're all using artificial intelligence and we're replacing the human brain i think actually we're we're a reasonable way from that i think human intuition still uh, very important and very powerful, but it, but it helps if you complement it with some machine learning, uh, and, we're, and we're definitely doing that. And and I think at potentially a more basic level, actually, the orchestration of rule changing and um, ch- making changes in the network based on information that you're seeing in the security world, I think is really important because you know we talk a lot in security about being intelligence-led and risk-based. Well. Being intelligence-led and risk-based is great, but it's only as good as the action you take off the back of it. So I think there's a a lot of development required um, in orchestrating and automating network changes off the back of intelligence. And and then we're starting to automate that whole process so that fundamentally the security posture of the organization changes when you learn something new. At at the minute, that's quite reliant on, on, on human intervention. What are the challenges for an organization as large as BT? How do you stay agile uh, despite your size? 
Yeah, it's a very good question, and 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 it, and it can be a challenge when when you're a company with over over 100,000 employees, uh, you're operating across 180 countries, remaining nimble, keeping agile, as you described, it, it can, can can be difficult. One one of the things we've done, which has helped greatly, is um, we, we've tried to embrace new technology, and we've done that um, through something called our Cyber Assessment Lab. So we have um, a, a team of people in our research and development centre. Um, here in the UK in, in, in Ipswich, um, and they are constantly um, testing and evaluating new security technology, and we're then bringing that to play in BT when we when we deem it uh, appropriate and, and when we think the technology has reached a maturity level and we can deploy it. So that's from a technology perspective, that's what we're doing, um, but we're too quick to talk about technology and security, um, and so we should also talk about people. So from a people perspective, um, we're investing heavily in bringing in um, new recruits, specifically uh, new apprentices, so uh, school leaders um, who have uh, an aptitude and a way of thinking uh, that we think fits well in, in cyber security, um, and also graduates, fresh graduates. So we're starting to you know, very much build our own uh, human intelligence and, and human capability. I think it's really important that we focus on the people side of security as much as we do on the, on the technology side, because ultimately this is a people problem and, and we need people to help uh, help solve it. So, um, yeah, a focus on new intake and, and improving the, the skill set uh, is really important as well. If we made cars in the same way that we made cars 100 years ago, for sure we'd have a skills shortage of, of, of car makers. But what we've done, of course, is we've evolved how we, we make cars and actually we've introduced a lot of automation and robotics and we don't need so many people to make cars. And, and I think the skills shortage that we will talk about in the security domain, no, no doubt it's a problem, uh, particularly at the very high end of the skill set. Um, but I do believe that a combination of upskilling of existing resource and better orchestration and automation, as we described earlier, probably ultimately holds the answer. So I, I don't think necessarily the answer is um, getting hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of more people doing computer science degrees, as much as I'd, I'd like that to happen. I think it's probably a combination of that and uh, you know, more orchestration and, and automation. I want to switch gears and talk about um, GDPR. So um, you have uh, GDPR is on the horizon. Surely uh, it's in your sights. Um, how is GDPR going to affect you at BT? Yeah, so it's definitely on the horizon. The horizon is getting much closer, so May 2018. So look, it's, it's an important piece of, of regulation for all of us, I'd say, or certainly all, all of us who work in organizations who will be handling European citizen data. Um, for us here in the UK, the ongoing Brexit negotiations will have no impact on that, so we can't Brexit our way out of it. Um, so we're absolutely working hard in BT to make sure that we uh, understand what it is we need to do to change uh, the way we operate to make sure we, we're compliant, of course, with that regulation. Um, and, and that involves a, a lot of hard work looking deep into our system stack and, and operating platforms. I think um, just kind of stepping away from the BT approach to GDPR, but just more generally in the industry, I think it's going to be a very interesting time because within the regulation, it talks about organizations having to take reasonable measures to protect customer data. I, I think we probably all say in the security industry um, that, yes, we've got some ideas about what reasonable might mean, but there aren't any clearly defined best practices outside of ISO 27001 international best practices. There's the NIST framework, there's some, some really good guidance from SANS, there are lots of different frameworks. Um, but, but I think what, what we may see off the back of GDPR is uh, a few test cases in the course of law, uh, and actually we start to get some case uh, law around 
what reasonable means in the information security world. And, and for me, I think that would be, that'd be very interesting. I, I guess what we're all hoping is we're not that first uh, case that, that, that <laughs> comes to court. But, and of course, we're working hard to make sure that that isn't the case, but that somebody probably will be. Um, and I think we'll all learn a lot about you know, the general perception of what measures should be taken. And, and as I say, we can all have a pretty good stab at that in terms of you know, secure configurations and auditable processes and all the rest of it. But it would be interesting to see how a, a court of law interprets that. Obviously, since you know, we, we're talking about a global internet, what what if ripples do you suppose GDPR will have around the rest of the world? I think it will bring, or it has the potential to bring a lot more standardization in the security domain um, and in the, in the privacy domain as well, I should say. And, and I think that can only be a good thing as, as we as consumers become more global and want to access our own data from you know, any device, from any network, from any country in the world then I think we need the regulation and the assurance that that data is going to be treated in the same way wherever you are. So I, th- I think it will bring, well, I hope it will bring consistency of, of data processing. Um, but clearly, you know, as with all of these different changes in regulation, only, only time will tell. But um, certainly going to be an interesting time. The regulation dictates that it's applicable to any company who is handling and processing a European citizen of data. We know that most, certainly most large American organizations, will have European customers and, be dealing, and therefore be dealing with their data. So, yeah, I think it's going to have a, have a big impact, almost have a, as much of an impact in America as it does here in the UK. Um, I want to switch in and talk about um, threat intelligence. Um, when it comes to your organization, what role does threat intelligence play in the business that you do day to day? Yeah, so it plays a big role. So we five or six years ago, we, we made a very uh, deliberate play to bring in um, some experts in this field. We have our own threat intelligence team, as to many organizations now, and that team are right at the heart of our operation. So if we have any kind of operational incidents or if they pick up on any any um, you know, intelligence threat, they're on, you know, we're straight on conference calls. They're, as I say, they're right in the middle of that, of that operation and working with our operational teams to, to, to see how we can best mitigate the threat. Or if, if we've had an incident, how they can perhaps work backwards and see what, what might have caused it, what threat might have uh, might have might have caused it. So really important for us. It's also something that we build into the services we deliver to our customers. So a differentiator in, in that regard, particularly because of our ringside seat, as I described it on the internet as a as a global ISP. So yeah, we we absolutely try wherever possible to be uh, to be intelligence led in our in our approach to security. And and we don't limit that to information security. It's for you know we, we like to talk about security as a whole. So. From a physical perspective as well, we have, um, you know, we do a lot of work to make sure that our physical estate is protected, and, and that requires um, threat intelligence as well. And we talk about uh, the the necessity to uh, transform pure raw information into intelligence. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah, it's always, uh, and, I, and I, I'm not a, an intelligence specialist in a very particular domain. Uh, and, and for those who are in that, forgive some of my terminology, but you know, information being turned into intelligence um, is, is interesting. And, and, I, and I always remember as an operational manager trying to put some metrics around threat intelligence, and it's very difficult because it's really uh, it's almost an art form. And what we discovered and what we found was that you've got to take it through to the outcome. So the out- ultimately what we want is for an action to be taken in our network that makes our network more secure and that action being taken off the back of some, some information or in, intelligence, if you want to use that word. 
Um, so we started to really focus in on, on actionable intelligence, which I know a lot of people talk about, but, but that, that's what really became key and really understanding what are the outcomes that you want to achieve. So it's almost like having uh, use cases, specific use cases in your organization so that you can direct your threat intelligence team to focus in on those and so that what they're doing day in, day out is fundamentally making a difference to the security posture of the organization because I think there is a risk in the intelligence world that you gather and and fuse together and harness lots and lots of information and, and arguably you can describe that as intelligence but that intelligence never sees the light of day and never actually changes how the organization operates and therefore how it's protected so I think that's a really important thing to to focus in on in threat intelligence is, is is actionable intelligence and tasking the intelligence team based on the outcomes that the business needs to achieve. How do you personally prioritize your responses to uh, the various indicators that come in? When your team comes to you and says, you know, these are the things that are happening uh, in our network, um, you know, to our customers, what's your process for choosing what demands your immediate attention? Yeah, so for, for us and for our customers, we would go through a process of understanding the critical assets and invariably in information security, that's applications. So we would use that as a, a taxonomy to then prioritize indicators. So, for example, if we saw a significant threat against our BT Sport platform and there was about to be a, a, a live football, or I should say soccer, should soccer match on, um, <laughs> We, we would jump on that right away. So, so it's a combination of, you know, operational kind of imperatives and understanding what your critical assets are and, and, and using that to, to prioritize the indicators. And we do exactly the same with our customers. So we'd sit down with our customers for a day or longer if it was required to really understand what it is that's crucial to their to, to keep their business running. And then if we start to see threats or indicators against those particular assets. What sort of general advice do you have for those who are in the cybersecurity business? From the vantage point that you have with BT, uh, what sort of advice would you give for those who are out there, you know, fighting the good fight every day, trying to protect themselves and their customers? I think, and this might sound uh, counterintuitive, but I would urge people to try to achieve simplicity. I think in the security domain, we are very good at overcomplicating situation. And, and granted, sometimes it can be very complicated. But in, in my experience, keeping things very simple, focusing in on your most uh, critical assets, uh, being very clear about the impact of any particular incident so that it gets a pro- proportionate response, and really bringing things down to their core components to, to keep them simple and keep it in the language of the organization that you're working within. So it makes sense. Um, and we always talk about uh, security or cyber security being a board level agenda item. Well, well it, might, it might well be, but you know, if we're speaking a different language to the board, then we're going to quite quickly get out of alignment. So, so I think it's about simplicity. It's about speaking the language of the organization that you're working in. And it's about focusing in on outcomes to make the organization uh, more secure. Our thanks to Luke Beeson for joining us, and thanks to Joel Hare from BT for coordinating the call from the other side of the pond. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. 
And remember to save the date for our fun, the 6th Annual Threat Intelligence Conference, coming up in October in Washington, D.C. Attendees will gain valuable insight into threat intelligence best practices by hearing from industry luminaries, peers, and recorded future experts. All the details are at recordedfuture.com slash rfun. That's R-F-U-N. I'm planning on attending, and the CyberWire will be recording our daily podcasts from the conference as well. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 